You know where we are. Just look around. They've got it. That's where they ship from. They've got all of it. What? What did you do? I told him a story. You play games? I told him a story. Oh, you. You poor dumb son of a bitch. You've done more damage than you know. I hope so. About to be a very lonely man. If it didn't have to end this way. Of course it did. Hey, Turner. How do you know they'll print it? You can take a walk. But how far if they don't print it? They'll print it. How do you know? Welcome, friends. James Corbett here. Once again, CorbettReport.com. This is the Film Literature New World Order series where we examine different works of movies and books and other uh, cinematic and artistic works for their deeper meaning and deeper value. And today we have an interesting conversation lined up on Three Days of the Condor, the 1975 film by director Sidney Pollock, starring Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. An interesting movie, a very exciting spy thriller. Uh, make of it what you will, but I was intrigued to discover that this is one of, if not the favorite movie of Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com and Newsbud. Extremely interesting. Sibel, thank you for joining us today. Many thanks for having me on, James. Well, I guess we have to jump straight into this. What, what, what appeals to you about this movie? Why is it so important for people to see this movie? Well, several things. I think it's one of the better movies on um, on on the CIA and and how convoluted and shady that organization is. We don't have many movies um, that that depict CIA. I'm not saying it depicts it perfectly or objectively, but if you put it in relative terms, let's say take all the Hollywood movies have that have been made. Uh, with CIA theme and and this one then this one shines compared to 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 the others so relatively speaking it was it was it was a well done film um not making CIA and the CIA agents into some heroes and the oh, 007 uh image that they like to give to this to this this agency. Uh, the other thing I really loved about this film was the ending, believe me or not, because um, again, we have had some movies uh, alluding to, to the media's collusion with the deep state or government or the CIA, but uh, this movie, especially the end scene, made, made the statement uh, pretty perfectly. And to me, it was that 
wow moment. Uh, I watched that movie long before my whistleblowing. Uh, it's a 1970s movie. But since my journey of whistleblowing started in 2002, I have watched it, I think, two or three times uh, more. Uh, the other thing that is interesting is the reception that that this film had. Again, it it was uh, it was widely uh, acclaimed, not by the uh, by by the media and the reviews, but by the public. And if you were to compare the public's reaction or their them them being receptive to to this film uh, at that time, that period when the movie came out, and you look at it now, even when some movies are made about let's say, semi-legitimate whistleblowing, you see a, a pretty big difference in reaction. Usually those types of movies today, they don't get as much um, uh, viewership or, or positive reviews. I remember going and watching Kill the Messenger, the one that was made on uh, Gary Webb, and I know that movie made very little money. And people didn't like it. And I went and read the reviews and people were thinking that it was boring and it was grim. It, it, it should have been an eye opener because believe me or not, that was a pretty well made movie. I went in there with my biases thinking it was going to be awful. They were going to dramatize so much and they were going to add so many things that really did not uh, exist in the real uh, journey of Gary Webb. But surprisingly, they did a great job. The day I watched that movie, um, there were only three other couples in that movie theater, and all three, I would say, were over 65. To me, that kind of tells me something about the difference in, uh, that, that has taken place, uh, the, the perceptions, the, the people, what they expect. They want the special effect. They want you know, 24, I don't know. They want, uh, they want movies that are all about bam and bang and heroes and we the great guys. Uh, that, and uh, of course, we'll talk about it. I'm going to let you uh, throw the questions and, and then I'll answer them. I think the timing of this movie, when it was made, a lot of people maybe, especially newer generations, they don't know that the context, what was happening in the country during that time when this movie was made and it was showcased. And I think that's very, very significant. And again, I think Sidney Pollack uh, did a great job weaving several of those at the time current and even today can be perceived as current um, uh, context, real life context into this film. Well, you're exactly right to highlight the political context in which this film was released, if not actually made. Uh, it's uh, coming right around that time of, of Watergate and the church committee hearings and all of the things that started to really open up the Pandora's box, at least a little bit, to give the public a glimpse into that. And I think that was being reflected in the cinema in the years leading up to Three Days of the Condor. We started to see more of this sort of hidden presence of a kind of secret, shadowy government uh, playing behind the scenes in a number of uh, movies, Executive Action and Parallax View. But then you have 1975, you have Three Days of the Condor, you have The uh, the Killer Elite by Sam, Sam Peckinpah, and you have uh, Breakout, a Charles Bronson movie, all of which specifically talk about the CIA and uh, some of their machinations. So that was definitely part of the, the milieu, the zeitgeist in which this was happening. And 
I mean, there's there's a number of interesting things to explore there, but I think one is just the general theme of the public's disillusionment or disenchantment with the government itself as specifically reflected in the CIA. And I think by that point, it was quite... Uh, quite common for people to be voicing their concerns about what's being done in their the name of their their government. I think that might in fact in many ways be the beginning of the slide to where we are today where Congress has a 10% approval rating or whatever and people would rather see random people from the phone book than their Congress critters in charge. I think that type of disillusionment with government really started um, we started to see that that slide in the 1970s and it's reflected in movies like this and the fact it was even possible to put this out there. Um, let's talk about the representation, the presentation of the CIA and how it, uh, how it reflected the public's consciousness of that at the time. Well, exactly. I think you touched upon some of the most significant points in, in, in there. And, and it, was, it was not only the CIA that was depicted, but the country's objectives, as, as you alluded to. Uh, uh, the two important things, for example... As we watch the movie and as he's trying to figure out what's his name, Joseph Turner, Robert Redford's character, and, and he gets closer and closer to find out what was this assassination that took place about and why these things were taking place because he's bewildered, you know. I mean, so much is unknown to him. He's on the run. It boils down to the Middle East and the and oil be- enters the theme in the movie, well, this is the era in 19, I think 1973, 1974, we had the OPEC oil crisis. This was during the period when these nations got together, you know, Iran, um, Venezuela, and they said, you know, maybe after all, we've got some muscles that we can flex, okay? And, and uh, maybe we can use uh, oil as bargaining points. And if we were to stick together, you know, as we know, divide and conquer has been in Middle East, in effect, in play for so for centuries. And, and instead of being on each other's throat, we can say this collectively and, 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 uh, and put pressure on the West, especially on the U.S. And, uh, well, this was, again, another turning point. Uh, in U.S. foreign policy of how to escalate the divide and conquer games and all the operations that, that they began implementing afterwards to make sure, to ensure that something like that would never take place again. And guess what, James? Since 1974, 1975, what happened to OPEC? I mean, OPEC is like a joke. It's like this little symbol thing that just uh, exists in names. And you look at the players, the members of OPEC, each one hating another one. There is this amazing um, divisiveness among them, which meaning that whatever they put in place through these operations in the Middle East, uh, through CIA, uh, it, it was successful. It it unfortunately was successful. So OPEC theme, without the name even OPEC being mentioned, Middle East, is, is woven into it again, which connects to the CIA. Because CIA played the, the biggest, the most major role in implementing and putting in place mechanism to prevent another OPEC. This is how we control you. Just one by one, we are going to divide. You know, Iran, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and guess what? The Iran-Iraq war started in around 1980, 1979, 1980, and then it just went into full effect. Million of people died. 
well, this is how we separated. And now, of course, even at the time, we had Gaddafi, you know, we had Libya. Uh, so that that is important. And the other thing that you mentioned, the church committee, Watergate, the scandals of family jewels that, that exposed all the CIA's domestic activities, Operation Mockingbird, that, that came into light. So all of those, I guess, went a long way to... Um, to bring that public's reception to the point for it, for it was a great timing uh, for the movie, uh, very current, and amazingly, it is still current today, minus the public's uh, perception being readily available to really look into the macro operations of the deep state. Because even when we say shadowy CIA, with this, it did boil down to the Middle East because uh, uh, and 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 the deep state the beneficiaries of of these operations. Well, the beneficiaries were never the American people. And what is the government as beneficiary? Sure, maybe they get expanded to a certain degree. But then you look at the true, real beneficiaries of of those operations by the CIA, you get to the deep state, you get into the big oil and the financial institutions. Right. And it's it's also the idea at the top of the pyramid. Right. Well, it's also the idea of the compartmentalization of that deep state, because there's a group within the CIA that's fighting another group within the CIA. (laughs) That was one of the most perfect points in this in this film. Because it's, I think it's the only one I know that really depicts how compartmentalized it is. We can show the parallel between this, let's say, and Operation Gladio. Because if you were, because I did have and do have members uh, for Nas- under National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, you know, former CIA uh, operatives and analysts. And, and it's amazing how the the most majority are not were not included they did they are not even they were not aware of operation gladio and it is so tightly compartmentalized and how for example uh the DIA defense intelligence agency under pentagon and and the certain specific units very select individuals operative from the CIA and very select unit with select individuals from NATO, run Operation Gladio, and yet keep everything in this very tightly controlled, highly super secretive, uh, compartmentalized fashion that that they can even keep the people who work there, and they may be working from in the next department, from knowing. And a lot of people don't understand. They don't think it's possible. But that's exactly how they make these operations successful. Exactly right. Well, would it surprise you, or would it not surprise you in the least, to find out that former CIA director Richard Helms had a role in the production of this film? It would surprise me. Now, here, you did it again, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I can't... Uh, I've seen it portrayed differently in different places. Some people say that he was an advisor to the film. Some people say that he was advising specifically Robert Redford on how to portray his character. The way that Sidney Pollack himself described it in a 1960, 1976 interview for uh, Jump Cut magazine was, uh, they asked, did you have any contact with the CIA while you were making Three Days of the Condor? And Pollock said, there wasn't really. We would have welcomed it, but we knew better than to try to pursue it actively in any way. What we did was to invite Mr. Richard Helms to come and watch the shooting for a day. 
which he did. I think he enjoyed himself very much. It was a movie, finally, and not any attempt on our part to do a definitive documentary. So we know that Helms was at least there for at least a day. There is a picture of him on set with Robert Redford. So we, the former CIA director was watching them produce this film in 1975. What does that say about what this film does or does not reveal and how it does or does not reveal it? Oh, that's that's the question. That's that's a very interesting question because it begs a question saying this was was this a well calculated, like many things have been, well calculated limited hangout that that was um because I mean we know, as you said, the the, the cooperation and the tight partnership between the CIA and the Hollywood. We also know Israel's role, okay, in Hollywood industry. I mean, I encourage anyone and everyone to find any major producers or directors or the really top decision makers in Hollywood who are not an avid supporter of Israel and who are not actually Zionists. Uh, it's impossible to really come across them. You know, even there was a time when some some of these agencies, uh, they were working with some production companies. They approached me for um, for optioning my book for, for the movies. And, uh, and, and I was doing a little check, background check on the proposal or coming, who are these people, who's going to make this film? And, and, and then in the end, the integrity of the book became more important than maybe making a few bucks, even though I needed the few bucks really badly. But uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, so it's both elements being present there in Hollywood. Then it begs a question saying, and CIA knowing that is coming out and nobody doing anything trying to either limited maybe it was limited maybe it was not as as good maybe it was better <laughs> we don't know how much was cut how much was kind of made uh, into a more milder expression of things we don't know about that uh, or is it that in some ways and i'm just throwing a hypothesis here it just like with nsa and edward snowden uh, did it become something that why not slowly, gradually put this as the reality, the facts on the grounds in the public's mind, because eventually it would desensitize the viewers because they would, people would say what's new. That's what they are supposed to be doing, the CIA. You know, um, I mean, it, it's, it's not very different than, than, than the discussions we have had. Mm -hmm. Why would they, for example, strategically go about releasing all the stuff with NSA, Edward Snowden? I don't know, one million documents, 3,000 is out. Well, if you, look at, if you look at it now and take a step back and say from the moment that it became a big, hot story until now, what has it achieved? The only thing it has achieved in the people's mind, majority's mind, it has normalized NSA's uh, penetration and complete surveillance system. No longer anyone can be outraged or surprised. So they have gotten that out of the way. That, if you compare it to 2005, 2006, how everything was tight, tightly controlled because they didn't want to have that kind of reaction from the public. And then like gradual, slow leaks, we had New York Times coverage, then maybe they said, heck with it, let's put everything out. So it's a slam dunk, it's a, it's a done deal. Everybody knows and everybody has accepted. As far as I see, everybody has accepted. I think today, because of thanks to Edward Snowden, every American would tell you, yes, that's what they do. 
and they have been seeing this and nothing has happened. We, where is the outrage? Where is the backlash? Oh, where were the hearings? Have we had hearings in Congress? You know, like things like the church committee, you know, even though it was for show mainly, we they didn't even have that. So Edward Snowden's leak didn't even bring about any congressional hearings. It just made it, let's do it openly. And uh, right. so well, the, similar fair, thing can apply to this. Well, to be fair, there were some interesting revelations from the church committee hearings. So I'm sure it's not the whole the whole truth and nothing Absolutely. but the truth. But there was a lot of interesting nuggets that came out of there, including But have you had any committee that came close to that? I mean, you compare that to the 9-11 committee in the Congress, okay? The joint the House and Senate Intelligence Committee that came together. It doesn't even compare. You're right, Operation Mockingbird. I mean, when you look go through the footage from church committees, you, you you see some really significant information coming into light. But back to your question that why, why would they even release it when we know how controlled Hollywood is and has been, maybe it is that, yes, you, as we mentioned, the Family Jewels scandals came out, the Operation, you know, Operation Mockingbird, Watergate, and, and maybe it was to make it more... Uh, this is it is it is the way it is. This is how it is, and and uh, and 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 gradually reducing that outrage yeah. factor possibility. Well, it is interesting because, as we say, so much of the the current distaste with government and disillusionment with government dates from that time. I think, and yet. There was the CIA with at least a finger in the pie, if not a whole hand. So let's hone in on that ending, because as you say, I think the ending is the crux of the entire story. And it seems to me from this interview from, from Jump Cut in 1976 that there may be a way that some of the audience read it as a happy ending, unproblematically. I'm not <laughs> sure. Let's let's just allow me to, to quote from this uh, a, a little bit, because I think it's interesting. So the magazine asks... Was the New York Times ending thrown in because of what was happening while you were shooting, the Watergate disclosures? And Pollock says, no, it wasn't at all. We didn't want the CIA to end up victorious. It was as simple as that. When a power that strong is after a single individual, where, where can he go? Uh, the book has the CIA killing everybody. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want him dead. I wanted some hope, some sense that the audience could feel that there is a recourse. And the fact is, as corny as it seems, that what is changing everything now is the media. That's the pipeline that's exposing all of this, whether it's Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers or Watergate with Bernstein and Woodward. Somehow, when it's public knowledge, that at least is a starting point, and we couldn't come up with another ending. The magazine asks, did you consider other endings? And Pollock says, we considered following the book where he kills people, but that just sounded cheap to me. There was another alternative, which was for him to somehow find a way of discrediting the character played by Cliff Robertson, and we toyed with that for a while, but that didn't work out. I was always nervous about the New York Times ending, so was Bob. We all were, but under the circumstances it seemed the most truthful one, albeit corny. I mean, how could a guy get himself out of a situation like that? The only way I know is to write a book about it, to go on television and say, hey, look, these guys are after me and here's the proof. I mean, somehow when you become a large public figure, it's hands off. It's like the CIA wouldn't dare to try to make a move to stop this movie. We have, we have too high a profile. It's like the Russians not killing Solzhenitsyn. If he were less famous, they'd do something to him. But notoriety is his only protection. He has too high a profile. We would ha what would happen to a world opinion if something did happen to Solzhenitsyn? And the magazine asks, I understand the ending differently. Isn't there a strong implication that the CIA also controls the New York Times? 
And Pollock says, there is. We are saying, God help you all if we can't keep this pipeline open. What if? That's why he says, suppose they don't. That's all I really meant. Not that they will or they won't. There is that slight bit of doubt, and that's what I wanted. That's why I froze the frame with Redford looking like he might be hunted, because, you know, you know, there was a real attempt to suppress the Pentagon Papers. We're taking all of this for granted now, all this freedom of the press. Oh, come on, they're going to print it, they're going to print it. Well, it's only within a couple of years that's what's, ha that, that's what's happened. There was real government pressure to stop the New York Times from printing the Pentagon Papers, and they might have won very easily. I don't know how much pressure is being brought to bear right now on these newspapers by CIA people. It can't be good for the CIA, there's a bad part to all of this, because the CIA, I'm sure, is partially paralyzed at this moment because of the public attention on them. And that's not good for this country either. The conversation goes on from there. I'll, of course, include the link to this interview so you can read through it for yourself. But what do you well, think about that? Well, was he given uh, an uh, honorary ambassadorship position, being so diplomatic, <laughs> answering those questions? That's what I wonder, because he just sounded like many uh, 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 spokespersons for the State Department is answering the question and then backtracking and then saying, yes, and maybe it's like, what are you really saying uh, with the CIA? And even if Today, we can sit down and truly look at what truly happened with Pentagon Papers and the New York Times. And, uh, and uh, I was one of the believers of this is what took place. You know, of course, I, all the president's men that I had watched, you know, when I was growing up. And, and to me, that was the history. That was the real story. But uh, again, after becoming a whistleblower after getting to know so many of these people, you know, uh, individuals like Dan Ellsberg and, and one of his biggest supporters, Morton Halperin. And Morton Halperin was the top guy uh, hired by Soros. He was the guy to make decision which organizations, which alternative news organization gets how many million dollars. Uh, I, I started questioning some of the narratives that I grew up believing in and what, be, what is being thought in, in the schools, in the history books of this is what happened with Watergate. I don't think we are even close to know what really was Watergate and how it happened and, and, and the deep road and the Washington Post. So to, to get all optimism and, and using example of the example of Watergate and, and the New York Times, I think, does not really apply for those of us who question everything and they don't take things in the, you know, it's their face value. Uh, but as far as optimism, no, I, I believe and I felt, especially after becoming a whistleblower and dealing with the media, that exactly that situation persists today and is it's been true. Nothing has changed. They, he's like, oh, they can go on TV? Exactly, right. Uh, right before uh, Hester's election in 2006, or it was 2008, I gathered two people who were not whistleblowers, but they had the documentation on Dennis Hester. And we did meet with some major editors, um, okay? And uh, because we said, People need have the right to know, and and I convinced these individuals from the FBI Justice Department to go with me and meet with this Darth Vader editor, and we gave them documentation. Three witnesses, two veteran agents, and they were not whistleblowers. They were not so-called disgruntled employees. A whistleblower with the most gag orders, okay, and documents. They didn't print a single word. They did, and he got reelected. 
Dennis Hastert got reelected. And that pedophile right now, I mean, he's being pardoned or whatever is happening with him. So, uh, or the same thing with Russell Tice and people who went to the New York Times on the real stories on, on NSA. Well, those real stories, still, they haven't been printed. For example, the aspect that deals with blackmail and how congressional people are blackmailed with information collected. Well, that never made it. I mean, we made podcasts. Guess what? These people were willing to go on TV, as Sidney Pollack is uh, referring to, and, and, and the newspapers, the TV you know, stations, they don't. They don't cover it. So I don't think it's optimistic. I think it's realistic. Uh, that's the part that I truly enjoyed. To me, that was one of the most profound scenes, moments in, in that movie. And, and he turns out and he says, well, here it is, and I'm going to expose. And I gave it to them. And, and after that brief pause, um, Cliff Robertson says, hey, uh, Joe. And, and he turns around and, and looks at him. And uh, Cliff Robertson says, how do you know they're going to print it? And, and the expression changing in Robert Redford's face, to me, that was, that, was, that was the most significant, most magnificent uh, scene in, in, in that entire film. And I think whether it was intentional or how much calculation they went through, that was a great ending. And that was the reality of it. Probably the public would never get to see what he had and what he gave them. And that's the reality of it. And that reality equally or if not more applies today um, to, to any of the whistleblowers. And when I was working at the FBI, uh, the counterintelligence department, I mean, I was exposed to how a certain nation's people's intelligence would talk to a certain high profile people, let's say Grossman in the State Department. And then the State Department would, the guy, Mark Grossman, would say, don't worry, we write a nice article, we'll fax it. Back then they used fax to the New York Times, and it would be printed under this very high-level, well-known journalist, okay, in order to make this and this thing easier for you. This was not once or twice occurring um, incidents or examples in so many of these things, uh, the State Department, which is another channel for the CIA to operate domestically as well, they would actually fax articles, editorials, and would have New York Times, Washington Post printed under a specific journalist or a specific uh, editorial writer's name. Uh, and, and it was a regular occurrence. It was a regular occurrence. So, um, and again, uh, obviously, in 1975, 1976, that was the case. So we know that it's been going on for a long time. Yes, we do. And that, again, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone listening to this podcast. But I guess there's the other side of that, uh, not just the, the cynical side of it, which obviously, I mean, of course, the New York Times wouldn't print a story like that. But the other side of it is that that really is the hope. If you did have a media source that would actually report on these things, that would be the counteract, or at least a potential counteraction to the, uh, the, the subterfuge of the CIA, wouldn't it? I mean, isn't that the actual hope here, that someone actually would print these stories, that someone really could break, burst open the stories? Well, my answer is going to have positive and negative uh, uh, sides, I mean, 50-50 divided. With today, so far, they haven't, and I'm still waiting. I know that this window of opportunity with the net and people talking about YouTube is very 
um, it's a very limited time period we have that the internet is not going to be functioning uh, the way it is today. And as they are seeing how information is getting out, they're going to restrict it severely. And, and it's happening as we speak. They have been working on it for, 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 for years. But is it possible to expose it? Yes. You know, is it possible to expose it through uh, James Corbett, Corbett Report? Yes, absolutely. Or through Boiling Frog's Post or through some other uh, journalistic entity with integrity. You put the documents there. The neg- that's the positive part. The negative aspect of it is, to me, the desensitization of public and how they have gone, this is the deep state together with their media arm and the government over these years, you know, Watergate, the church committee, to make sure the public's attention span, desensitization, systematic brainwashing, apathy-inducing uh, uh you know, uh, methods to get it to a point where even if you show people, let's say Abu Ghraib, Abu Ghraib pictures made it to the public eventually. When was it that Seymour Hirsch? And they put these horrendous pictures online, didn't they? Did they Did they hide it? No. It even showed up on CBS 60 Minutes, right? Well, actually, apparently some of the worst photos still haven't been published, but they did publish them. They were horrifying pictures. And it was admitted to, so that was exposed. My question, and actually turning it into question and giving it back to you, is what what kind of conclusion do we arrive at when we see things that have been exposed, whether it's Russell Tice on the blackmail, whether it's my case with Operation Gladio. We have been covering it, you know. Your channels have had 100,000 views on some of these videos that we've made. Abu Ghraib, you know, NSA, all these things. And then when we step back and look and see, well, what happened when we exposed it? Well, we gave the information to the public. We exposed it. But there there still is this lack of action or the necessary reaction, I would say, that you would expect. And to me, that's the part that whenever we have a roundtable discussion, it comes and say, how do we deal with that dilemma? Putting information is one thing and, and with integrity and letting the people, the public know, but how do you reduce this Decades and decades of brainwashing, perception changing, perception shaping, apathy inducing uh, operation that they they put they put in place. That becomes a question: Is it the lack of information, or is it something else? And to me, that's the question, James. Well, and yeah, still- well, that's a good question, and I think the the answer to that question is probably it's a lack of information in a certain sense. It's a lack of information about how to deal with this information, what to do about this information, because you or I are not going to be able to single-handedly change the operations of the CIA or anything of that sort. So what do we do? I mean, people know about this. And I think that's one of the things that's important about this. Our perception of what the general public thinks often comes from the, the mainstream media, which of course is never going to tout our successes. It's only ever going to tout its own successes in brainwashing and propagandizing. So uh, I think there is a much bigger groundswell of support for questioning and 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 understanding a lot of this information than than was generally portrayed but 
because people follow what they see on TV, I think they'll uh, they'll tend to go along with uh, with what the the predominant narrative is. So now now we can all turn and hate Saudi Arabia for nine eleven, for example. Because yeah, we knew <laughs> right, they were that, covering that, something that, up. That, oh, that's it. It it's was fun. just going through my my head yeah. as you spoke yeah. about that. And, and how they have been made as the answer to 9-11, the scapegoat. You know, I was subpoenaed for one of the lawsuits against the Saudis by the family members. That was when they invoked, government invoked the uh, state secrets privilege for the second time. But to see this Saudi Arabia as, a, as an independent, separate uh, entity there that does this, Rather than going up the chain, and when you go to Saudi royal family, Prince Bandar, old, and you ending up again with the United States deep state and government, there Saudi royals wouldn't exist if it weren't for us. I mean, millions, tens of millions of people, they they wouldn't exist. We created the Saudi royals. We sustained the Saudi royals. Their military is our military. Their intelligence, they don't have CIA like Saudi, it's our intelligence. So there is no such a thing as a Saudi government or Saudi entities with the Saudi objectives that they are making it to be. And to this date, again, there has been this faction of 9-11 activists uh, movements and, and even some of the family members who have an issue with that. It's easier to think, maybe it's partly it's nationalism, James, is to say that some evil foreign entity with their interests and objectives did that to us. It was not our own deep state here, our own government doing it to us. So how much of it is wishful thinking that they want to have that come true? But no matter how we try to explain, it's like, no, it's the Saudis and did it, or with some people, Pakistan did it. And again, you look at any of these entities, you don't, they are puppets and they are nothing. They are our creation. We create them, we sustain them, we manage them, we direct them. And if they have done it, it's because we have managed and directed and created them to do exactly that. So the top of the pyramid, we are coming back again to our nation. We are coming back again to our CIA and their bosses, the deep state. All right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's bring this back to what you do. Uh, for example, the Lone Gladio. How did this film influence or not influence uh, OG sixty eight or Elsie Simon or any of the characters or situations that you came up with, or the ending to the Lone Gladio, uh, where it is exposed in the media? <laughs> So, yes, it hasn't really ended. I'm working slowly because of all the activities. You know, we've been engaged for news, but et cetera. I, have been, I haven't been spending as much time with the third book because they are, they're going to be connected. There will be three books on the Lone Gladio, uh, uh, separate but yet connected. Uh, a lot of that was shaped by, of course, Operation Gladio, the reason for the state secrets privilege, the gag orders, everything. My own experiences with the media, with, with Congress, which we go through that through Elsie Simon. And, and when she goes to Congress, and she goes exactly to the guy who's like the wrong guy, <laughs> which we have covered uh, earlier in the book, again, so reality-based, uh, based on real experiences or the media, but also it deals with the compartmentalization. Uh, the movie, this movie, I don't know if 
this movie in any way uh, influenced that? Because, I mean, if you were to uh, compare OG 68 to Robert Redford's character, Joseph Turner, Joseph Turner, for example, is this naive guy, or um, he, he doesn't know why it's happening. He was given this compartmentalized job, like a bookkeeper, like an accountant, you know, a boring librarian job doing that. Um, and we don't come across, I don't know even about the hitman that they hired, you know. I mean, that maybe some layers of complexities there uh, with uh, people who are in the in the no man's zone, they're mercenaries, and, and we, that's exactly how CIA and NATO operate, the paramilitary units or mercenary units. So how much of some of these operations are outsourced to those third-party entities, and then you start following the chain with those dark entities, you know, like Blackwater, where you get to, etc. Um, it's uh, I would say a lot of it was shaped by facts involved in Operation Gladio, my own experience, my whistleblower's experience, and and the realism that comes with there are no... I usually refer to it as the, these are the black hat guys, these are the white hat guys, these are the good guys. There is this there is this really distinct separation between the good and evil. You, you have these mixture of good and evil in many of them. And then you are also dealing with pure evil or the dark side. Uh, that, that is so real. That is extremely important for people to know that it does exist. And... Uh, Maybe the word evil is not the best way to describe it, but the dark side is saying, because to this date in our country, especially, there are people who say, yes, we know CIA, they, they do a lot of horrible things, but it's for the good of the nation. You know, how, how, right. how they, 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 it likes it. Pollock said there basically, right? I mean, I don't know how valid this latest survey they did was. Uh, it was, I think, Pew Research and another one. And they said, you know, I don't know how much of it is Donald Trump effect, et cetera. But today it was something like 64% of people said uh, they, they found waterboarding to be justified and that we need torture in place. We may even need more torture in place. I would bet with you, James, the same, let's say, survey, uh, Assuming it's valid, as you know, we have to question all these survey results. Maybe that's normalizing in the mind of public when people say most people think it's okay, you know, and I, and I want to confirm possibly. But let's say their result is valid if you compare it to what they published in 2004, 2005, a decade ago, you would see the difference why it's escalating. Is it that desensitization with Abu Ghraib, you know, with all the speeches thrown by some of these candidates, etc.? Because today more people in the United States are pro-torture, according to the findings, and, and they want more. They, we got to more. We got to torture them more. And ISIS, look, ISIS, they are cutting heads in those videos, professional videos. We got to do 10 times worse to them. You know, we're going to hang them, you know, upside down from the ceiling and do things to them. Uh, these are the things that makes me pause and say, okay, this is during the internet era. This is during the era with all the alternative news outlets out there operating, putting it out there. And what is happening to the 
level of apathy is increasing, what we call, some people may call the moral principles decreasing. And and how do we counter that? Because you would have expected with more information being readily available through the internet, we would have been seeing the reduction. It would have been reduced. More people waking up, more people seeing what's going on and feeling outraged. But for some reason, we are seeing the opposite direction. And uh, that is truly disheartening. And, uh, and then some people say usually things have to get much worse before it gets better. So I don't know how valid that point of view is, that before things start going towards positive direction has to get much worse. I don't know. I don't know if I subscribe to that notion. So speaking of Newsbud, as people will have seen, the Newsbud Kickstarter did not reach its funding goal, and thus the project is not going ahead in that form at that at the time schedule as was first indicated. So what is going to happen with this online independent <laughs> news source? Well, that's exactly what I have been working on for the past one week. I tell you about the positive part, the heartening part. Number one is all the support that we did get. And uh, there were people who were saying, oh, it's impossible even to get to a certain number, 25,000, because most people don't find media an exciting project, a real journalism. Most people, they want games, they want toys, you know, they want this cooler that has a naked woman popping up when you open the lid and dance for you. <laughs> you know, each cooler comes with a naked woman. But uh, what was heartening that we really beat those odds. And 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 uh, and the other thing is, I have been receiving. We have been receiving hundreds, if not thousands, of emails from direct messaging that goes from Kickstarters to our administrative uh, server, and and people saying, "We know you didn't reach. We contributed. Please don't give up." I mean, is it possible to take what you have? And maybe break it into phases. Or maybe is it possible to start much leaner and, and smaller and then try to grow from there? Can you please come up with some ways to revive this and say, well, it's not feasible at this point with the level of support or interest or the number of people who know about this project to reach this. But, you know, this is reachable. What can we do? You, Newsbot team. And us, the supporters, what can we do to make this project a reality? And don't let it, because the idea, the notion, the principles behind it, just they're, they're just too good to, to just discard. Are you going to discard? And with me, you know, I went through that during my whistleblowing journey. I would go to Congress expecting when I was naive, James, not now, I don't think that way now. I would go to Congress and they would, um, not do what they promised to do, holding hearings, then I would get so disgusted, I would be ready to just basically throw in the towel and say, there is nothing to be done. But then a few days later, some catalyst would come along and, 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 and pull me back on my feet. And I would say, no, I'm going to go to the courts and I'm going to challenge them in the courts. That whole notion of not giving up. If one way fails, you try other you know, methods. You try other channels. You don't give up. Well, people saying those things, are you going to give up? Well, that goes against my nature. I think that goes against the nature of all the people we have. Peter B. Collins feels the same way. 
So we got together, we've been thinking, we say, well, is it possible to phase this out and say, we reduce the amount and we divide it into four phases. We know that at this point, this is our reach. So if we start a Kickstarter this coming May and go for, let's say, 150000 over a 45-days period, and then balance the shortcomings with the subscription fees that we have for the site at BFB, and then say, with this amount, we can have part of that team in place operating no, we're not going to have a fancy new website or any new website developed. That's costly with the mobile application. We'll say that one is for phase three, let's say. We won't have a web administrator, okay? We'll have one full-time journalist. We'll have one or two full-time producers or maybe one part-time producers and make it with that and subscription for phase one. Then four months later for the next phase, we'll go for the same amount Again, balance with subscribers, bring one more journalist, one more producer, so that at the end of this 12, 15-month period, we will be where we want it to be in, in the first place, to be able to offer our programs 90-plus percent of it without subscription to everyone, so we open it all to everyone, and to have all the team in place because we can, we can operate in a self-sustained uh, fashion without the advertisement, those things we're not going to compromise about. And that's the done deal. You know, people are like, if you add 100,000 subscribers to your YouTube and if you turn on that advertisement, you know, you, they are giving me numbers. You can't make this much. And I, and I keep telling them, I know, I understand, but I don't want it. Imagine if we are broadcasting a program about big pharma, okay? Let's say you and I are doing this program interview and we are talking about big pharma and the evils of big pharma. But our program starts with Merck advertising one of its whatever, uh, ADHD medication. I mean, what kind of a hypocrisy would that be, James? <laughs> I mean, we are doing that, but our video is opened with the advertisement inserted by Merck saying, give your kids ADHD medication, it's, 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 uh, it's so repulsive. So we are still set to say no advertisement under no circumstances, no NGO business, no foundation business. We just start small and we bring in the team members in phases. And, and that will give us also the opportunity to show people what we are doing the videos we are producing, the analysis we are putting out there, the investigative stories we are publishing, and they get to see what is being done with their generous support for the phase one and say, do we like this? Is this great? Is this worth it? Because if it is, then we're going to go and support them again on phase two. Or they may say, no, I don't like this, each person individually, and I don't think it's good enough, and I don't think it's... uh, effective enough, and I'm not going to support. So again, it's the people who have the power to get us through phase two or say, bye-bye. You're not going to even get to phase two. I'm comfortable with that because to me, that's the that's truly free market model, you know, supply demand. The demand is there. People like what you're doing. They support it. It's not. Bye-bye. Just get out and say, this model doesn't work. Um, and that's exactly what we are going to do. 
Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure people can stay tuned not only to BoilingFrogsPost.com, but CorporateReport.com for more details as they emerge on that. So we'll wrap up this conversation on Three Days of the Condor. Thank you for bringing this film to my attention. I have long known about it and heard about it, but never actually sat down to watch it until preparation for this uh, this interview. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. Lots of juicy nuggets in there. And I'm, of course, as always, interested in what the people in the audience think about this. So please do leave your comments about Three Days of the Condor in the comments section of this post on CorbettReport.com. Sabelle Edmonds, thank you very much for joining us today. Many thanks, James. Thank you. All right, friends, there goes Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com and hopefully of the forthcoming NewsBud.com, which, as I say, we will continue to keep you updated as details emerge of the new Kickstarter campaign for uh, NewsBud. But in the meantime, as is our want here on Film Literature in the New World Order, we're going to turn to the CorbettReport.com website for the comments and questions and ideas from the previous edition of this series, specifically number 33, where we were talking about The Moon is a Harsh Mistress with David Friedman. And there were several comments in on that edition of the series, but only one from one that someone that I think has potentially at least actually read the book. <laughs> this comment at least more or less relates to the book. <laughs> and that's from Jay Conlon, who writes about an alternative idea about the book. And he goes on to mention a couple of interesting facts. For example, uh, Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers is the only novel on the required reading list at the Army War College in, Inna in Annapolis for the study of small force tactics. And the fact that the moon is a harsh mistress was praised by this character named Ron Ronald Hadley Stark, which Jay Conlon notes parenthetically may have been a CIA type, if not necessarily a CIA agent, but I think the implication is there. And ultimately, the long and short of this is summed up in the end part of Jay Conlon's uh, comment. I would say, and I think both Ron Stark and Robert Heinlein would agree with me, that The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is not an anarchist book at all. It is just the contrary. An intriguing little comment. And again, you can read through that for his uh, reasoning and his ideas there. And as I say, there were several other comments, uh, some of them more or less off topic uh, with regards to the book itself. But if you do have a comment, question, an idea, some insight into Three Days of the Condor, please, again, log into the website at CorbettReport.com and leave your comment there in the comment section. We'll go over it next month, where we will be talking about... <gasps> Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Happy reading, everybody. Talk to you next month.